The seas only gifts are harsh blows, and occasionally the chance to feel strong. Now, I don't know much about the sea, but I do know that that's the way it is here. And I also know how important it is in life, not necessarily to be strong, but to feel strong. To measure yourself at least once. To find yourself at least once in the most ancient of human conditions. Facing the blind, deaf stone alone, with nothing to help you but your hands in your own head. Hello, this is Susan Marie, and welcome to The Human Condition. A conversation with you based upon everyday observations that all of us experience made simple. You can catch these on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play Music, and please rate, subscribe, and share. Most things I speak of are linked for further study in the data section of the show. Just like Emile Hirsch portraying Chris McCandless from the movie Into the Wild, stated at the beginning about the sea's gift being harsh blows, which is how life is. Waves come crashing at you, things you never expect, yet somehow you deal with them. And Chris is talking about feeling strong, not necessarily being physically strong, but knowing and feeling that you can get through a certain situation, which is resilience and self-efficacy. And to get to this point of feeling strong is to be at an absolute rock bottom. We are nearly at a loss of hope, where you face the dark night alone, the daylight alone, and deal with your own thoughts, your own soul alone. And that these conditions facing yourself without the aid of another are imperative for feeling strong, in turn, being emotionally, mentally, and spiritually strong. Today, I wish to speak with you about life meaning and purpose, self-efficacy, resilience, the free spirit, and Nietzsche's thought experiment. Your life purpose consists of the central motivating aims of your life, the reasons you get up in the morning. Purpose can guide life decisions, influence behavior, shape your goals, offer a sense of direction, and create meaning. For some of us, that can relate to career, family, friends, seeking meaning through spirituality. Purpose is unique for everyone. What you identify as your path may be different from others, and your purpose can shift and change throughout life in response to changing priorities and different experiences. Questions that arise when reflecting on your purpose are, who am I? Where do I belong? And when do I feel fulfilled? Now, for some of us, these questions may be daunting, while for others, simple. It all depends on where you're at in life, and there's no right or wrong position to be at in life. It's different for all of us, dependent upon our life choices and actions. If I attempt to answer the first question, who am I? Well, I can answer that plainly, as in, I'm a human being, I'm a woman, my name is Sue. To go deeper, I can state I'm a spiritual being existing inside a human shell. To go even deeper, I can state I'm made of stardust and molten lava from the core of this earth. My breath is the wind and I am forged from all elements. The second question, where do I belong? Well, that changes as my choices and perspective on life changes. Right now, I belong here on earth, although oftentimes I do not feel like I do. I also belong in nature and I belong succeeding, learning, being a mother, giving, helping, making a difference, loving and being loved, writing and talking here with you now. See, not so tough. So I just defined my life meaning and purpose. Now you try. Who are you? Where do you belong? And when do you feel fulfilled? Write those down. 
For life to be valuable or meaningful, it doesn't have to be unique. Believing that specialness is tied to meaning is a misconception that could lead you to think of your life as not meaningful. Just because you aren't discovering a scientific cure for a disease, traveling to the moon or saving people from famine, things change all the time. We move, meet new people, have new experiences, encounter new ideas. And as we change, our values transform and so does our sense of purpose which we must continually work on, which brings me to self-efficacy. Self-efficacy is, according to psychologist Albert Bandura, a personal judgment of how well one can execute courses of action required to deal with situations. Now, what does that really mean? Bandura defines self-efficacy as one's belief in one's ability to succeed in specific situations and in turn, this plays a major role in how one approaches goals, tasks, and challenges. The theory of self-efficacy lies at the center of Bandura's social cognitive theory, which emphasizes the role of observational learning and social experience in the development of our personalities. The main concept is that an individual's actions and reactions, including social behaviors and cognitive processes in almost every situation are influenced by the actions that individual has observed in others. According to Bandura, people with high self-efficacy, that is, those who believe they can perform well, are more likely to view difficult tasks as something to be mastered rather than something to be avoided. The American Psychological Association focuses on resilience using this example. Imagine you're going to take a raft trip down a river. Along with slow water and shallows, your map shows that you'll encounter unavoidable rapids and turns. How would you make sure you can safely cross the rough waters and handle unexpected problems that come from the challenge? Perhaps you would enlist the support of more experienced rafters as you plan your route or rely on the companionship of trusted friends. Maybe you would pack an extra life jacket or consider using a stronger raft. With the right tools and supports in place, one thing is sure. You will not only make it through the challenges of your river adventure, you will also emerge a more confident and courageous rafter. Psychologists define resilience as the process of adapting well in the face of adversity, trauma, tragedy, threats, or significant sources of stress, such as family and relationship problems, health problems, workplace, and financial stress. As much as resilience involves bouncing back from difficult experiences, it can also involve profound personal growth. Being resilient doesn't mean that a person won't experience difficulty or distress. People who have suffered major adversity or trauma in their lives commonly experience emotional pain and stress. The road to resilience is likely to involve considerable emotional distress. Like building a muscle, increasing your resilience takes time and intention, focusing on four core components, connection, wellness, healthy thinking, and meaning. These can empower you to withstand and learn from difficult experiences. To increase your capacity to get through and grow from difficulty, the APA suggests staying in contact and connecting with 
trusted, empathic people that can validate your feelings and support your resilience, to join a group for social support, to take care of your body, both physical and mental, by exercising, eating healthy, practicing mindfulness and meditation, to avoid negative outlets, people, and substances, to help others, to be proactive in your own wellness, to have realistic goals, and to stay on the path of self-discovery. Keeping things real or in perspective is paramount and accepting change as a must as well as learning from not living in your past. Nietzsche saw the process of becoming oneself as governed by the willingness to own one's choices and their consequences. A difficult willingness, yet one that promises the antidote to existential hopelessness, complacency, and anguish. Nietzsche's philosophy is the idea of eternal return, the ultimate embrace of responsibility that comes from accepting the consequences, good or bad, of one's willful action. In Nietzsche's book, Ecce Homo, which is Latin meaning, behold the man, how one becomes what one is, lies his thought experiment. Are you ready? What if some day or night a demon were to steal into your loneliness to loneliness and say to you, this life as you now live and have lived it, you will have to live once again and innumerable times again. And there will be nothing new in it, but every pain and every joy and every thought and sigh and everything unspeakably small or great in your life must return to you all in the same sequence even this spider and this moonlight between the trees and even this moment and I myself. Well, for me, just imagining that existence sounds kind of hideous, but what does Nietzsche really mean? You see, Nietzsche's demon is a psychological challenge or question that is to be answered not in words, but in the course of life. It's the question in each and everything. Do you want this again and again? How well disposed would you have to become yourself and live for nothing more than what you already know? So being content in this sense is not being distracted or asleep or resigning self to fate that cannot be avoided. Rather, it is to live to your heart's content with the knowledge that you will do this and everything again forever. Nietzsche suggests that the affirmation of the eternal return is possible only if one is willing and able to become well-adjusted to life and well-adjusted to one's self. To be well-adjusted is to choose wholeheartedly what we think and where we find and create meaning. The idea of infinite monotony for Nietzsche was to assume absolute responsibility. And if one's choices are to be replayed endlessly, then they had better be the right choices. And also the idea of assuming absolute responsibility, Nietzsche also speaks about the free soul or the free spirit by stating, how can man know himself? It is a dark, mysterious business. It is also an agonizing, hazardous undertaking, thus to dig into oneself, to climb down toughly and directly into the tunnels of one's being. How easy is it thereby to give oneself such injuries as no doctor can heal? 
Moreover, why should it even be necessary given that everything bears witness to our being? Our friendships and animosities, our glances and handshakes, our memories and all that we forget, our books as well as our pens. For the most important inquiry, however, there is a method. Let the young soul survey its own life with a view of the following question. What have you truly loved thus far? What has ever uplifted your soul? What has dominated and delighted it at the same time? Assemble these objects in a row before you and perhaps they will reveal a law by their nature and order, the fundamental law of your very self. Compare these objects, see how they complement, enlarge, outdo, transfigure one another, how they form a ladder on whose steps you have been climbing up to yourself so far. For your true self does not lie buried deep within you, but rather rises immeasurably high above you, or at least above what you commonly take to be your I. A soul in which the type of free spirit can attain maturity and completeness had its decisive and deciding event in the form of a great emancipation or unbinding, and that prior to that event, it seemed only the more firmly and forever chained to its place and pillar. The great liberation comes suddenly to such prisoners, like an earthquake. The soul is all at once shaken, torn apart, cast forth. It comprehends not itself what is taking place. An involuntary onward impulse rules them with the mastery of command, a will, a wish developed to go forward, a mutinous, willful, volcanic-like longing for a faraway journey. Now Nietzsche's thought experiment is a tool for calibrating our lives for true contentment. And John Cog, professor of philosophy at UMass, states, it might be tempting to think that the rightness of a decision could be affixed by some external moral or religious standard. But Nietzsche wants his readers to resist this temptation. Nietzsche's demon, after all, comes to us when we're all alone. His question can be heard only in one's loneliness, loneliness. And therefore, the answer cannot be given on behalf of some impersonal institution. It is indeed the most personal of answers, the one that always determines an individual choice. Of course, you could choose anything you want to raise children, get married, but don't pretend to do it because these things have some sort of intrinsic value. They don't. Do it solely because you chose them and are willing to own up to them. In the story of our lives, these choices are ours and ours alone. And this is what gives things, all things, value. Cog continues, perhaps the hardest part of the eternal return is to own up to the tortures that we create for ourselves and those we create for others. Owning up to recollect, to regret, to be responsible, and ultimately to forgive and to love. Nietzsche stated, no one can build you the bridge on which you and only you must cross the river of life. There may be countless trails and bridges and demigods who would gladly carry you across, but only at the price of pawning and foregoing yourself. There is one path in the world that none can walk but you. Where does it lead? Don't ask. Walk. And Emerson once wrote, Imagine learn to detect and watch that gleam of light which flashes across his mind from within, more than the luster of the firmament of bards and sages. Yet he dismisses without notice his thought, because it is his. In every work of genius, we recognize our own rejected thoughts. They come back to us with a certain alienated majesty. 
great works of art have no more affecting lesson for us than this. They teach us to abide by our spontaneous impression with good-humored inflexibility than most when the whole cry of voices is on the other side. Else tomorrow, a stranger will say with masterly good sense precisely what we have thought and felt all the time, and we shall be forced to take with shame our own opinion from another. The power which resides in each person is new in nature, and none but he knows what that is which he can do, nor does he know until he has tried. Trust thyself. Every heart vibrates to that iron string. Please join me next week for more interesting conversation and check out the last episode on triggers, trauma, and how to deal with them.